Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 245. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King, thank you, Lord, for bringing us to a place where we can once again stop and make a concentrated effort to focus on your words and to equip ourselves for these last day scenarios and for everyday scenarios, really, Lord. It's not that because we're drawing closer and closer to the second coming of Yeshua that we need to be more diligent in our study or anything like that. Rather, really every day we should have this mindset where, Lord, we want to make sure that we have our uh, hearts uh, in tune with you, uh, in tune with your spirit so that we can hear your words of instruction, so that we can uh, receive our marching orders, so that we can be ambassadors for your name, so that we can share the good news with people around us who do not yet know that Jesus is Lord. Help us, uh, Father, to have the right perspective on what's going on around us, even though uh, it seems like uh, things are progressing from bad to worse. If we read the Bible and if we have the bigger picture in view, we know that ultimately righteousness is going to be ushered in. So it has to get worse before it gets better. And so um, we've got our eyes on the goal. Uh, we know the end of the story because we've read the book and we've read all the way through to the end. So thank you for this commission that you've given to us. Continue to raise us up as your people and uh, continue to protect us and give us opportunities, give us um, holy boldness in our witness, help us to uh, continue to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you, um, purposeful uh, lives, meaningful lives. Um, the saying that um, the late doctor, well, I, I don't know if he's doctor, but I know he's, he's definitely um, uh, uh, a preacher, a preacher of righteousness, uh, Leonard Ravenhill, uh, or Ravenhill or Ravenwood, one of the two names. Um, he's He has a, a quote, something like this, Lord, that just pops into my head, something to the effect of, is the life you're living for worth Christ dying for? And it's a question. It's a powerful, powerful question. So thank you for this challenge that we have this responsibility of living our lives in, in a manner that's pleasing to you, and it is worth the life that you gave for us on the cross. Thank you for that sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to um, uh, go forward with um, a sense of clarity on the topics that we're going to be embarking on. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. Bishim Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us, uh, joining me for these live internet studies. This is an hour and a half long study. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. The first hour is given over to this topic, Eschatology of Biblical Study of End Time Events, where we are working our way through these topics you can see on your screen right now. So we are looking at all of these topics as they are pointing us towards the book of Revelation, and we've already worked our way through different um, topics related to the background of understanding prophecy, books of Daniel, some other Old Testament key prophets. Um, we're currently now working our way through Yeshua's words as recorded for us in Matthew chapter 25, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. So this is the first hour long of this um uh, study that's given over to eschatology. The second last segment of the study, of the live internet studies so of 30 minutes, is um, dedicated to a topic that's a continuation of my Trinity series that I started way back, the um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. And the topic is actually the look at Proverbs 23, Lady Wisdom in the book of Proverbs, 
where we're asking the question, um, is wisdom Jesus? Is Jesus wisdom personified um, or is wisdom just a personification of God's power and God's wisdom? And how far do we go with that personification metaphor if indeed it's only personification? So remember, biblicalunitarian.com is representative of a biblical unitarian uh, denominational non-trinitarian perspective that Jesus is a creature uh, in the sense that he's a human. And so he was, he's simply a mere human the way all of us are humans. And therefore he's not God eternal. He's not the sec second person of the Trinity. And so wisdom in the book of Proverbs is not Jesus. So uh, if you're interested in those topics, join us for the second half or just stay tuned for the entire show. All right, let's jump into eschatology. Remember, we're in topic nine, Yeshua's Olive Discourse part two. And we worked our way through looking at the words of Yeshua left for us in the books of Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, and Luke chapter 21. But we're in this topic now where we're talking about the timing of his second coming and the events that are going to lead up to it, as well as the state of affairs on planet Earth just before his second return. I'm sorry, just before his second coming. And when we look at what was recorded for us in Matthew. We have Matthew 24's discourse, but we also went backwards in Matthew, like you can see on your screen right now, to Matthew 13, and we notice that there's this parable about the weeds that Yeshua give us, gave us, a parable that explains that Yeshua is going to come back and separate the peoples one from one from one from another, and there will be this separation in the in the weeds parable of the from the weeds, the the wheat and the tares, right? The good. Uh, seed that was shown sown and the bad seed that was sown by the adversary which both grew up into um plants that needed to be uh separated and harvested or dealt with well um when we turn directly into matthew 24 we're right near the verse section that starts at a verse 36 so let me read that for you one more time just 36 down to 41 and then remember we're borrowing pastor david guzik's notes who is a christian pastor let me just show you well you can't see uh you can kind of see the commentary that i'm going to be using tonight um uh, you can find this commentary online at uh enduringword.com enduring word all one word the link is in the description below the video in case you'd like to follow along in its commentary we're going to look at his notes because we're we're focusing on this question about when jesus says that there will be two men in the field one will be taken and the other left who's the taken and who's the left who who are the taken those who are taken to be with jesus in rapture and deliverance and those who are left are those who are left behind in judgment like the popular tim lahay um taken book series or i'm sorry left behind book series is that who's taken is the take are the taken the righteous and the, the left behind are they the wicked or is it the swap is it the other way around um i've heard many pastors say that the taken is actually those who are taken in judgment and those who are left behind are those who are left to be, to inherit the kingdom, the righteous. So it's one or the other, right? There's clearly a separation. So David Guzik's going to give us those notes when the time comes. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to borrow quickly when we get to that part. I've got some notes from Tim Haig right here that talk about the same part of uh, Matthew 40 and 41 specifically. And then I've got uh the notes from sorry i didn't mean to go there i've got the notes from a pastor by the name of thomas ice who also looks at this part of that 
uh, chapter in Matthew, um, who is taken and who is left. And then um, ultimately, we're going to work our way. You saw the... Uh, they saw the the screenshot a moment ago ultimately we're, we're we'll kind of finish out this section with two parts the last part of looking at matthew chapter 24 is all of discourse we'll look at this commentary that i found in a blog about the feast of trumpets and its christian significance meaning near the end of the time when yeshua is going to return soon there are these signs that are given or these um uh uh uh, themes that are uh, noticeable in the scriptures that seem to indicate that there might be a time that we could even estimate when these events might happen that are related to some Jewish feasts and things like that. And then lastly, and I'll show you this slide, it's all the way at the, the end, we'll, just before um, leaving Matthew 24, I want to show you the parallels with Paul's letters to the Thessalonian uh, church there, particularly 1 Thessalonians, and show how, just like we did with Matthew and Revelation, how we show that there are parallels between Matthew's Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation chapter 7 with the openings of the seals, then there are the parallels there that are directly one-to-one. We also have similar parallels with Matthew's rendering of the details and Paul's listing of those details in those letters. And that'll conclude our section with the all of the discourse when time comes. But that's kind of the big roadmap. All right, let's go back to this topic list. Just again, remind you, we're in topic nine right now, Yeshua's All of the Discourse, part two. We will eventually work our way towards the next three clusters of topics all go together. Rapture views, an overview, uh, rapture view, uh, making a case for a pre-wrath view, and then finally rapture view is a final analysis. Those will all be clumped together as we work our way through this this concentrated topic on the rapture. But for now, let's go back to Matthew. So we've got this parable of the wheat and the tares. And Yeshua explains it for us in Matthew 13, starting in verse 36. I read this last week, so I don't need to read it. I just want to scroll down and show you the part that uh, I was focusing on. Notice he says, starting in verse... Um, the, starting in basically verse 40 here, uh, he's talking to disciples, and notice, I'm just bringing to your attention the chronology, the sequence of the events. So just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the, Yeshua says, end of the age. So we know this is the context, and you have to remember, there's this larger context of Jesus' return, and within that larger context, there are these two, possibly three, possibly four, but at least two main events that are always kind of on the minds of Christians who study eschatology these days. And those two big events are the rapture and the second coming. And the discussions swirl around the explanation of the details of whether or not the rapture and the second coming are one event or the rapture and the coming are two different events, or the rapture and the coming are simple are two parts of the same event, or they're one event. So there's you, you kind of get the idea. But when Yeshua says the end of the age, it's clearly kind of the larger view. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a, a separate event known as a rapture, and then seven years later there's a, a second coming, or if you're talking about like a post-tribulational scenario model where basically the rapture and the second coming are almost the same event where we we go up and then we immediately come back down 
with Jesus in second coming to where there's almost no time frame between the two. So either way, both of those events, both of those aspects of Jesus second coming occur at what we call the end of the age. So Yeshua continues in verse 41, the son of man will send forth his angels and they will watch this gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks so in matthew's rendering of yeshua talking about us being gathered or let me go back and just show you um early up earlier up in the uh verse of matthew 24 is starting about verse uh 31 right here yeshua says and he will send forth his angels speaking of yeshua with a great trumpet blast and they will do what they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other and so we've got this gathering of the angels but notice in matthew 24 the angels gather his elect but earlier in matthew in matthew 13 Starting in verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So I think what we, we need to be careful when we're reading through these passages and we're having this debate on is this rapture or is this second coming? Uh, who's being taken? Who's being left behind? There are details that are similar in both parts of these passages but there are clearly differences because i mean even at face value even though we've got some of the same main players we've got yeshua i.e the son of man we've got the angels i.e the reapers and then we've got the people here on earth who are either going to be gathered or left behind taken or left notice that in matthew 13 the the count tells us that the angels will gather out of his kingdom the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness clearly these are not yeshua's elect these are the terrors, right? These are the bad guys. These are the bad players. But in the Matthew 24 account, Yeshua is there. The angels are there. There's some gathering going on, but he gathers his elect. So this is kind of helping us to understand what is the proper um, event that we're looking at. Continuing to verse 42 in Matthew 13, and they, speaking of the angels, they will throw them, speaking of the the tears into the furnace of fire in that place there will be what weeping and gnashing of teeth so it's a sounds like they're they're going off into destruction obviously but notice verse 42 comes before verse 43 indeed verse 43 opens up with the word then right which is a kind of a time marker a chronology marker a sequence marker then the righteous will shine forth like the sun where where in the kingdom of their father the one who has ears, let him hear. So we read that part to emphasize again that in this part of this parable, in this story, whether or not you take this to be the exact same event as the rapture, you have to agree that if we take this passage at face value, there seems to be a sequence where the right, the, the wicked are gathered and taken out of the way first, removed out of the equation, and then sequentially, the righteous are left to inherit the kingdom. So then when we turn to Matthew and go back down to the part where we kind of focusing intently, where we started out um, about uh, uh, this day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the sun, but the father alone the coming of some man will be like the days of Noah for as in those days before the blood, they're eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and did what? We looked at this word, took 
briefly, we didn't look at really the Greek behind it. I'm resisting that just yet because when I get to one of these other pastors' commentaries, they'll begin to look at the Greek for me, so I don't even have to look at it now. But the flood came and did what? Took them all away. And who did it take away? It took away the righteous. I'm sorry, it took away the wicked. So, in part of this reading, if we just take it at face value, the flood took the wicked away and the ark left them in that place or something that effect. I think that's how the pastor is going to describe it. So will the coming of the Son of Man, Yeshua says. And then we get to the verse 40 where we're kind of focusing now. At that time, there will be two men in the field. And then notice Yeshua said, one will be taken and one will be left. And then verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And our question, of course, on the table for tonight is who is taken and who is left? If we um, continue looking at Mark, uh, let's jump here. Mark's has a, a, a parable, I'm sorry, not a parable, but a rendering of the Matthew Olivet's uh, discourse story. We call it Matthew, but I mean, Mark has it too, so it's not really Matthew's story. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the same story that Yeshua told to his disciples that day, sitting across from the temple on the Mount of Olives. In Mark 13, we don't have any details given about Noah, um, uh, you know, and the flood and things like that. Um, and we don't even have the two men taken and one man left or anything like that. He simply um, tells us, kind of in this para in this uh, paragraph here, he says, "Learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as the branches become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near." And so he's it's more general overview of the coming of the Son of Man is near, and you'll recognize when you see these things happening that it is near. And notice that he's giving us believers a sense that we can detect when the nearness is we've said i've maintained all along that there are two people groups in question when yeshua is giving these words to disciples he's envisioning that there's the world in large at large which are the tares in the previous example the previous parable and then there's the believers which are the wheat and so based on where you find yourself when this time unfolds in history you are either going to be clueless and in the dark and the day is going to overtake you like a thief in the night and we're going to see that language that shows up not just beginning with Yeshua, but it's going to be picked up again by Paul in Thessalonians and then picked up again by Peter in his letters. This thief in the night analogy is Yeshua saying that my second coming will be unexpected, but largely to those who are of the world because they have no no sense of urgency or immediacy or even imminency, if you want to use that word, which I don't completely agree with. but. Either way, they're not looking for Jesus to return. They don't care. So they're in the dark, and they are the ones who are going to experience the thief in the night kind of aspect of Yeshua's second coming. But when referring to, to believers and Jesus' own disciples, of which we now are part of that crowd, that group, we are the ones who Jesus specifically uh, isolates us and lets us know so you too when you see these things happening verse 29 of mark 13 here recognize that he's near right at the door so we are not in the dark paul picks up on that aspect that i'm describing when he gets to thessalonians he says so you brothers are not in the dark i'm paraphrasing you're not in the dark you're children of the light so that they will not overtake you like a thief so that's basically what mark 13 gives us but we don't have any other 
details other than verse 32, the, the um, conclusion, but about the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angel of heaven nor the son, but the father alone. So we're talking about who's taken and who's left, but ultimately we're asking this other large question, can we know the timing of Yeshua's return? And we're, we've still got this question looming over our head that, well, on the one hand, if no one knows the day or the hour, is it this imminent return that could happen in any moment. I don't believe that's what not knowing the day or the hour is kind of hinting at. I think that not knowing the day or the hour is actually telling us just that there is the exact time when Yeshua comes that we won't know, but within the season of the events happening and the nearness of his return, we will be able to detect that as believers. So, don't get confused about this not knowing the day the hour as if it means that he could return before i even finish this oops sorry couldn't finish my sentence because jesus came back and raptured me away i'm not following that particular line of theology i think there that there is no such thing as um imminency in the sense that he could return at any moment up until all of the pre-prophesied expected events that have um been already foretold but that must happen once those all take place and once um uh the sequence leads up to a point and chronology leads up to a point then there will be a point when yeshua's return is imminent but for now we've still got a little bit of time does that mean we've got time to dilly dally and to lollygag and to just um you know fool around and not be about our father's business absolutely not nope that's not what's going on so let's turn to luke real quick and kind of pick up um uh and finish answering this theme of who's left who will be taken who'll be left behind um remember in luke 17 going all the way back up to verse 20 the pharisees asked yeshua um about the coming of the kingdom and because this pharisee this group of pharisees at the time didn't belong to yeshua's sheep yeshua could see through their, their heart and see their hypocrisy and their their um their self-righteousness and their uh, blindness and their rejection of him so he spoke to them in riddles he left them in the dark on purpose because they, like the world at large, are not going to be watching for really any signs. So they're not really interested in the kingdom in in the righteousness sense of the way Yeshua would describe it. They're just interested in their own um, self-achievements. And so he says, you know, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed in verse 20, which almost sounds contradictory to everything he just said in Matthew 24 about look at all these signs, telling your disciples when you see all these things going to happen that know, th- know then that everything's near. You know, you've got all these parables about the fig tree. You've got Noah's day. You've got um all these uh, signs that are going to lead you got the abomination desolation that's going to happen you've got the man of lawlessness that's going to appear on the scene you've got all these uh, earthquakes and rumors of wars and all the what we call the beginnings of birth pangs and all this stuff and uh, you know when he sees jerusalem's uh surrounded by your armies you've got all these things that are going to indicate that the kingdom of god is near and yet when the pharisees ask him he says the kingdom of god is not coming with signs that can be observed nor will they say look here is it or there there it is for behold the kingdom of god is in your midst is this contradictory to the fact that he does give us signs? No, it's not contradictory. Know who his audience is. He's speaking to unbelieving Pharisees. They weren't really interested in um, bringing in the kingdom of God per se. They were always just out to trap him. So he's not going to tell the secrets of the kingdom to them. He's going to leave them in the dark. And so he's going to speak in riddles. And the riddle is that, yes, the kingdom of God is within us. 
right? With the coming of the Messiah on the scene, the manifestation of the kingdom of God has arrived. It's the whole now and not yet principle aspect of prophetic telescoping in prophecy, where you've got prophecies that foretell of the coming of the kingdom of God in the midst of the people. And then when Yeshua came, it came in fullness and in power, but it was internal. It was invisible. It was in your midst. It was in Jesus. It was in the, those who believed in Jesus. That's why I said it's in your midst. The kingdom of God is in you. Yeshua tells us in other places. So on the one hand, it is internal. But on the other hand, the thing that the Pharisees weren't being going to be given details of, just uh, uh, contrary to what he did give the disciples, was all the details about the signs leading up to the physical manifestation of the kingdom when it um, is finally established here on planet earth so moving past that little um, dilemma for the pharisees but not a dilemma for us as believers he continues in verse 22 to give all of the details to the disciples about when to know when the kingdom of god is going to arrive in the days of when the son of man is going to be able to be noticeable and so he gives them the the concept about the lightning shining and flashing out of the part of the sky in verse 24 he talks about then the days of noah in verse 26 and 27 and 28 and when he gets to verse 28 he not only um already talked about the state of affairs on the on planet earth with noah but he now brings in lot which we didn't get in the matthew rendering and i'm going kind of fast because we covered this uh in previous teachings but he's working his way towards the idea that um just like it was in the days of noah it will be in the days of the son of man and then he talks about in verse, starting in verse 31 this separation that we've been talking about Two will be on the housetop with his. I'm sorry, on that day, people will be on the housetop. Don't go back to, to get your goods. If you're in the field, don't turn back as well. Remember Lot's wife. Um, but then when he drops back down to the verse 34, from verse 34 down basically to the end of this um, chapter, he's, he gives three um, examples. Matthew only gave us two. He says, I'll tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other will be left. So that's an extra from Matthew. And then in verse 35, we have the two women grinding at the same place, or two, two women in the mill, like we saw earlier. Uh, one will be taken, the other will be left. And then in verse 36, two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. And our question again is, who is the taken and who is the left? And then Luke gives this odd place for the saying where he asks, where the disciples said, where, Lord? And he says, where the body is, there the vultures will be gathered. And we're going to find a pastor's opinion as to why this gets inserted here to support the view that the taken are those who are taken in judgment and destroyed, whereas those who are left are those who are left behind to enter into the kingdom of God. Similar to the sequence of the way it appears in the parable of the wheat and the tares that we just read about earlier in Matthew chapter 13. So let's now begin to ask more pointedly, who is taken, who is left, and uh, see if we can make some sense of this. So we've looked at all the relevant passages. Let's first turn to David Guzik. Uh, he's the one that we've been borrowing primarily for this section. Starting in section three of his commentary of Edit During Word, which covers verse 40 through 44, we have Jesus cautions his disciples to be ready for an unexpected coming. And then you've got the verses again. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. And then Jesus says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Again, the larger picture here, not just about who's taken and who's left, but the larger picture is, are there two events? Is there a rapture and then a second coming? And if there are, why is it that we don't know the hour or the day when the Lord is coming, but yet according to Daniel's timing that we've looked at earlier and that we will look at here in a moment, 
we do actually know the day because Daniel is given a chronology of when the abomination of desolation takes place at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel, which is the final seven-year slice of history. Towards the end of the 70th week, we are given events like at the end of the 1260 days, then there will be 1290 days, then 1335 days or something like that. In other words, there's an extra 30 days at the end of the seven years and then an extra 45 days at the end after the end of the 30 days. In other words, an, an additional um, 45 days, uh, I'm sorry, 75 days uh, between the end of the week and the bringing in of the kingdom. I'll show you a chart here in a moment, so don't worry if you're confused. First, I want to get out of the way this taken and left uh, discussion and, and disagreement between some Christians. Uh, who's right? Is the taken the righteous and the left behind the wicked, or are the taken the wicked and the left behind the righteous? So David Mill, uh, David Mill, David um, Guzik says, uh, speaking of this passage, we'll pick up our uh, commentary reading right here. We left off with a cliffhanger last week, right? What's his perspective and what's how do we solve this dilemma of taking and left and no one knows the day or the hour, but yet we can know the day and the hour based on what Daniel said, right? Two men will be in the field, one will be taken. Jesus here points to curious disappearances, to a catching away of some, some at the coming of the Son of Man, also described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. He then goes on to, to remind us that taken... Um, and we'll look at taken again in the Greek, but right now David Guzik is just reminding us it's the same verb that's used elsewhere in Matthew earlier, and it implies to take someone to be with you, and therefore, you ready for it? Points to the salvation rather than the destruction of the ones taken. And Guzik is quoting France. So, according to Guzik's perspective, those who are taken, quoting France, those who are taken, based on the Hebrew word or the Greek word, um, which I think is some form of para lambano, just off the top of my head, which is made up of two Greek words, para and lambano, which means to take to yourself closely. Para is the close aspect, and the lambano is the take aspect, and the nearness part of it is the first part, para lambano, para lambano. Well, according to Guzik, this is an indicator that those who are taken are those who are the good, the righteous, and it points to salvation. But again, there are pastors who say it's the opposite. So we'll see, we'll try and see if we can make sense of which one it truly is. Then Guzik um, talks about how that watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Since the day and the hour of his coming are unknowable, Jesus' followers must be on constant guard for his coming. And then he says, and I'm trying not to reveal my the answer just right away because we're going to get to it in a second. Um, he says, here again is what we call the second coming dilemma. And then he's got these two bullet points. Is the second coming at an unexpected hour, or is it positively predicted? And then, or I'm sorry, three bullet points. Is it business as usual, or is it worldwide cataclysm? And then the final bullet point. Um, is it meeting him in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17? Or is his coming with the saints as foretold way back in Zechariah 14, 15? So we'll get to the answer here in a moment. But first, let's deal with this dilemma of taken and left. Who is taken? Who is left? All right, remember, according to the weeds and the terrorist parable in Mark 13 that we I'm sorry, Matthew 13 that we read earlier, the ones who are taken sequentially first are those who are the tares they're taken in um in judgment or they're taken in uh, uh they're taken so that they can be gathered to be burned uh like it says right here in let me see there we go 
40, 41, and 42. The weeds are gathered up and burned with fire at the end of the age. They're thrown into the furnace and fire, and they'll be weeping and ashen teeth. So, sequentially, the taken in this rendering from Matthew in this parable is the, wick, the wicked. And then in verse 43, we can see the line of demarcation. Then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So, they are left behind to inherit the kingdom. All right, let's first turn to um, a commentary. Uh, let me find it here. Yeah, I had it right there. By Thomas Ice. He's got these notes that he offers on Matthew's rendering about the one will be taken, one will be left in interpretation of Matthew 24 and 25. All right. So, uh, it's just this part of the commentary that we're really focused on. I'm just going to basically, from this point, um, read a lot of this down through without trying to stop and explain what's going on since I've already done my explanation. We'll read down through this gentleman's um, uh, blog commentary, which is available at blueletterbible.org. And then we will go back and um, kind of entertain a bit of the discussion about it. So, he's got the quote again from Matthew 24, the relevant verses, 40 to 42. Two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Okay, let's read his notes. Uh, let's start right here. In the early 70s, in the 1970s that is, probably the most popular song within the Jesus movement was one entitled I Wish We'd All Been Ready by Larry Norman. I was involved in this movement and we rarely met when we did not sing Norman's song. This song about the rapture includes the following lines. So now let's see what the rest of this commentary has to say. And then we've got a quote here from the song, a man and his wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. Two men walking up a hill. One disappears, and one's left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. Okay, so that's the song. And this author continues. Christian author, by the way. While I tend to like songs about the rapture, I generally like this song, I do not think Matthew 24, 40-42 compare Luke's 17, 34 uh, 34 through 37, which we looked at all of those. I do not think that this is a reference to the rapture. Instead, Christ has in mind his second coming. Now, notice right away, he's already dipping into part of the question that we've been entertaining as well. Are there two events? Are, is there a rapture and a second coming? Or is it one event where we just go up really quick and then we come right back down really quick? Are these events separated by seven years? Are they separated by a few months? What's going on? We'll look at that uh, shortly. So, let's talk about what's going on. He says, one will be taken. All right. He says, the illustration used in this parable is straightforward in both examples. There will be a separation where one individual will be taken and the other left behind. Let me do this. I don't like the way it's highlighting. There we go. Um, there will be a separation where one individual will be taken and the other left behind. Also in context, it is clear that one is a believer and, other, and the other is not. This describes a clear separation process, something I've always been maintaining uh, all along, but we don't have to um, have sharp differences if we both at least agree on those basic aspects. He continues, the question related to this passage is, who is taken and who is left behind? And remember, he, he said earlier that this passage is a reference, um, he does not think this is a reference to the rapture, instead, Christ has in mind his second coming. So, notice that difference right away. Now, with that context, we can keep reading his passage. So, uh, here he is, his uh, blog here, his explanation, his commentary, short essay. The question related to this passage is who is taken and who is left behind. Those who hold to pre-tribulationism have argued both ways 
on this issue. Does this refer to the believer being taken and the unbeliever left behind, or just the reverse, where the unbeliever is taken away and the believer is left to enter the kingdom? Okay, what's his option or his uh, his uh, perspective? I believe the latter view. Sorry, I believe the latter view is correct. It is the unbeliever who is taken away in judgment. Now, remember, he's saying that this is the second coming not the rapture okay at this point uh for those of you who are not quite following following along why i keep making that distinction i'll bring in a few charts okay so we've got this first chart that is familiar to us at the so reading left to right on the far left of this chart this is a view known as the pre-wrath view of the chart because the um rapture takes place Somewhere, if you look at the top of the chart, where reading left to right, we've got Antichrist makes covenant, then we've got abomination of desolation, then we've got coming of the Son of Man, date unknown. That arrow, that third arrow reading from left to right, um, that says coming of the Son of Man, date unknown, that's the rapture. But notice it's well into the um, seven-year tribulation, into the seven-year slice, and it's well, it's even past the halfway mark. So, in this view... The rapture takes place sometime in the second half of the 70th week, sometime in the second um, three and a half year mark uh, in that in that second three and a half years after the midpoint of the tribulation and or I'm, I'm using the word tribulation because that's the popular term that's assigned to this last seven years of, of history, even though I disagree with the word tribulation there. But the um, uh, the point I'm trying to bring up is that the rapture is where the third arrow the third arrow is pointing to where just at the beginning of that yellow arrow that you can see on your screen where it says day of the lord that's the front part where the rapture takes place and then to the farthest right of the screen where it says jesus reign in jerusalem begins that last arrow the fourth arrow on the farthest right at the top of your screen that is the second coming so notice the, the distance between those two the the gap between the the coming of Son of Man and the Jesus reign of Jerusalem beginning, i.e., notice the difference between the rapture and the second coming. That's one version. Um, here's another version of the pre-trib rapture. This is a pre-trib. So that first slide I showed you was pre-wrath. It's just kind of an overview of the, of the perspective that I hold to. This is the most popular view that you're looking at right now. We'll get more into rapture in my next set of topics. So this is really just kind of a wet your appetite teaser for the purpose of identifying um, who's taken and who's left and when. So we're not really getting into the discussion of which tribulation, which rapture view is correct at this point in time. I'm just using these slides. We will use them again when the time comes to deal with rapture. But notice, reading left to right again, on the far left, we've got two arrows kissing each other, a black one and a white one. The rapture is the white arrow pointing up, and the black arrow is the is Yeshua meeting us in the air. So those are the the um, that's the timing at the beginning or at the outside of the seven year period known as the tribulation. And then when you follow all the way over to the right side of the screen where it says second coming, we've got the black arrow pointing down. That's Jesus returning with the saints at the end of the seven years to usher in the millennial kingdom. But notice the separation between the rapture on the far left. And the second coming on the far right is this giant seven-year time frame. And so this gentleman that we're reading right now says that Yeshua's words in Matthew are dealing with the second coming, which is the one on the far right, 
which means those who are taken are those who are taken in judgment. Okay, that's his perspective. Here's the pre-wrath view I just looked at a moment ago. The black and white arrows that are kissing each other are after the midpoint and about halfway through the midpoint, as opposed to being at the far left at the beginning of the seven years. So you're well into the seven years. The, the pre-wrath rapture takes place there. The second coming, this is a bit misleading as far as, far as my use of the word second coming they put the word second coming there and rapture as if they're the same event but my understanding is that the word second coming should be slid a little farther right maybe i'll find another slide that does that <coughs> later on um or i'll modify this one myself but i believe that second coming should be at the farthest right of your screen whereas pre-wrath rapture should be where the two arrows are are kissing each other so that's another one and then we have a popular view known as post-trip rapture this is held by a lot of messianics that i encounter who believe that the rapture and the second coming are essentially the same thing they're both just called the second coming there's no need to separate this event called rapture because so quickly we'll just go up and then we'll meet the lord in the air and then we'll just come right back down to planet earth and there won't be any significant time frame between the two and therefore it's not necessary to separate this event known as rapture it's just an aspect of second coming that is really the same event as rapture they're the same time frame maybe even on the same day and it all takes place at the farthest end after the seven years have run their entire course therefore and we go through everything god's wrath the tribulation wrath of satan all the bad stuff and jesus rescues us at the farthest end but either way the who's taken and who's left still for this pastor that we're reading his notes on the taken and left applies to the fact that the taken are those who are taken away in judgment and those who are left are left to inherit the kingdom uh, right after the second coming takes place uh so those are some of the um uh charts that i wanted to show you here's another one another uh, chart that is the pre-trib view rapture here on this chart is just in front of the bright red um square that reads the tribulation so it's in front of the seven-year tribulation in other words pre-trib meaning we do not go through the tribulation as the church as the saints therefore the rapture and the second coming are separated by seven years and according to this view that we're looking at right now those who are taken are those who are taken in judgment at the end of the seven years in other words um near the time of the second coming of christ and those who are left behind are those who are left to inherit the kingdom age which is a thousand years on this particular slide uh, same uh, kind of time frame going on this is just a different slide that just shows you some of the details that happen after the midpoint of the week owing to the fact that there's this dilemma about how can we not know the day or the hour of Yeshua is coming if the return i.e the second coming at the far right of every one of these charts remember reading left to right um if the second coming at the far right of any of these charts has already been prophesied by Daniel to take place at least after 1260 days, and then after 1290 days, and then after 1335 days, right? If that's when the kingdom is coming, then how can Jesus say that no one knows the day or the hour? At the very least, he can only say that no one knows the hour, because clearly Daniel knew the day and gave it to us. He spoiled the whole thing, right? Spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Daniel spoiled the whole second coming of Christ right that's the dilemma all right we'll, we'll deal with that in time okay so um here are the two events that i didn't show you this slide last week on purpose because i wanted to kind of leave it for you as a secret but these are the two events that many pastors are working from on the left side we've got the rapture in blue 
and on the right side we've got the second coming in orange and these are the two bookend events that are either separated by seven years in some charts or they're separated by separated by a short slice of time in other charts or they're right on top of one another in other words they're they're um um uh consecutive with one another uh, on other charts rapture and second coming well which one is right here's another chart featuring the exact same thing rapture on the left in yellow second coming on the right in blue and we'll begin to look at these um in time and then here's a, a view that we're going to get to in time um where this particular author says that the rapture on the left christians are taken and the wicked are left and then on the right side the second coming of christ the wicked are taken and the christians are left and we'll ask is that what's going on as well well so these are kind of a preview of where we're going in this particular study so now having said all that let's go back to this particular pastor's notes his last statement that i read was it is the unbeliever who is taken away in judgment at the second coming not the rapture okay so he continues he says as i've been arguing throughout matthew 24 the focus is upon the second coming while the rapture is nowhere to be found in this passage so that's his um context of saying that the wicked will be taken and the righteous will be left in matthew 24 our lord is teaching about the events leading up to his return tribulation events in matthew 24 4 through 26 followed by a revelation of a second coming which is then followed by parables that drive home lessons related to his previous teachings, right? Matthew 24, 32 through 51. He says, I think it would be inconsistent to introduce parables about the rapture when he has not taught about that event in this particular passage. All right, so that's his perspective. He continues, it is true that when the rapture occurs, there will be a separation of believers from unbelievers when, they, when we are snatched away from planet Earth. So notice, he says that when the rapture takes place, we will the believers will be what snatched away from planet earth he continues it is true that somewhere there will be two people together and one is taken while the others left however that is not what is spoken of in matthew 24 because of the context so again this is his perspective he goes on to say that these parables are making points about what christ taught in matthew 24 4 to 31 and then he jumps right into the um the primary question taken in judgment or salvation what does he uh think all right now we're going to get into a little bit of the greek uh which was um helpful for us I mean, there we go all right let's keep going he says the greek word used in matthew 24 40 to 41 is paralambano just like i said earlier my memory was correct so matthew 24 when it says um um taken to ourselves now let me let me stop for a moment and get uh, go a little bit slower because i need you to see this uh uh freak here so let me find uh the word taken there we go all right so um i suppose i can just scroll down to verse 40. this is the entire um passage in a uh uh what we call a uh, interlinear where we can see the hebrew i'm sorry we can see the, the english and the greek uh so going back to verse 40 uh then will be two in the i'm sorry let me back up actually to verse 39 uh the english part of this 
interlinear is a bit difficult to read just because the word order matches the Greek. So it's not going to be what you're used to, but I think you can still understand even though the word order is uh, not quite the same. But uh, starting in verse 39, and not they knew until came the flood and took them all away. So notice in the um, English for the word took here, the Greek word is um, Aaron, which is Strong's number 142. Aaron is not the same Greek word that we're going to read about here in a moment. I've already told you it's paralambano. But the um, flood came and took them, Aaron, all away. Only in the English do we see took, and in the talks about two men will be taken, it's a, um, a similar form of the word took, taken, right? So they're related words there in the English, but in the Greek, they're two different words. And this bears relevance to the study as well. So just bear with me on the technicalities. When we get down to verse 40, Jesus says, then will be two in the field. One is taken. And we can see now um, here, paralambanetai, paralambanetai, which is rooted in the word paralambano, which the pastor is going to highlight. It's Strong's number 3880, a completely different Greek word. So now when he says two are taken, uh, one will be taken, one will be left, the paralambanetai is taken um, as a Greek word, big, long, meaty Greek word. And the Greek word we're going to find here when he talks about it is a taking unto oneself. This will be very important when we get to the final analysis, but I don't want to tip all of my cards just yet. But two men will be take, two will be taken, one is, one is taken and one is left, and the one that's taken is the paralambanetai. Uh, rooted in the word para lambano, and then uh, verse forty-one: two women will be grinding at the mill. One is taken. Same thing here. Same Greek word. Same form. Also para lambanetai, rooted in the word para lambano. Strong's number thirty-eight eighty, and one is left. And then he finishes the verse with telling us to keep watch, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those are the Greek terms before us. Now going back to um, this um, pastor. Um, that we were uh, that we're looking at the Greek word used in Matthew twenty four forty through forty one for the taken and left, not um, the flood came and took them all away. That's a different Greek word. We've already established that. Now we're just talking about uh, the two and the separation: one taken, one will be left. Uh, Paralambano made up the root word lambano, which means take or receive, and the preposition para which means alongside of. Thus, the meaning of this verb is, quote, to take into close association, take to oneself, take along with. The only place that I could find where this word is clearly used of the rapture is of Christ's initial disclosure of this mystery in John 14.3. And we've um, quoted this verse in our previous study as well. I will come again and receive you to myself. The word receive in the English is the original Greek word para lambano, para lambano. All right, I will receive you to myself. The whole phrase there. And that's the end of John 14.3. He goes on to say that since paralambano is not a technical term that has the same meaning in every instance, it is used in the New Testament. Like any word in any language, usage must be determined by how it is used in a given context. All right. He continues, I want to finish through this part tonight. Some have tried to argue that taken here refers to the pre-trib rapture, right? So notice he's making two disagreements. 
He's disagreeing that the time frame is the rapture. He thinks that the time frame is the second coming at the far right of all the slides that we've been looking at, right? The, the second coming. He also disagrees with who is taken and who is left in the overall sense of the use of the words. So he says, there's a small minority of pre-tribulationists that see these two verses as a reference to the rapture. For example, David L. Cooper says, quote, The dominant idea is that the one who is a child of God will be taken, whereas the one who has never made his peace with the Lord will be left to pass into the Great Tribulation. As Louis Barbieri has noted, quote, The Lord was not describing the rapture for the removal of the church, uh, for not describing the rapture, for the removal of the church will not be a judgment on the church. If this were the rapture, as some commentators affirm, the rapture would have to be post-tribulational, for this event occurs immediately before the Lord's return in glory, and it definitely occurs after the rapture or after the uh, tribulation, because Jesus even said, in case you weren't catching it, if we go back over to Matthew in 24, uh, going back up to verse um, uh, 29, he says, "But immediately when after the tribulation in those days." So the time frame is after the tribulation. Now here's the beautiful part. If this is a seven-year tribulation, then this return, this coming here that that is mentioned in verse 30, where he said they'll see the sign of the sun, they'll see the son of man coming on the clouds in, of the sky. Since this is definitely after the tribulation, because it's unmistakable that he says that in verse 29 and 30, then if this is talking about a post, if this is talking about a pre-trib pre-millennial um, time frame, then it definitely is the second coming, and the um, the timing of Yeshua's coming is after the after the tribulation, second coming, time of his second coming. So let me show this to you in the charts that I'm talking about, um, meaning this chart right here would be a good representational. We have a pre-trib rapture on the far left, then we have a seven-year tribulation, then we have a post trib second coming at the far right so the rapture on the far left and the second coming at the far right are separated by seven years so if that's the case then when jesus says after the tribulation of those days then they'll see the son of man coming that kind of matches with this particular chart but here's the beautiful part if we took a pre-wrath view and we take that the tribulation is starting at the midpoint of the week <coughs> excuse me, starts at the midpoint of the week, not at the far left at the beginning of the seven years, but starts at the midpoint, and then only runs for a short time and is cut short by the day of the Lord, then we still have a rapture happening after the Great Tribulation, and we also have the Second Coming happening after the Tribulation. So generically speaking, we still have uh, Jesus arriving on planet Earth or coming um, after a Tribulation. Chrono chronologically speaking, whether you stretch the tribulation out seven years or make it a very short time, uh, or whether you call it the second, uh, the, the the tribulation or the second coming, we still have it happening. That great event, that coming, that arrival, happening after a tribulation, no matter how long you put the tribulation. Likewise, with this post-trib rapture view, where the rapture and the second coming are essentially smashed into the same event, they both take place after the tribulation so there's really not a huge point to be made or to be gleaned from saying that the second coming of messiah happens after the tribulation 
if you haven't defined how long the tribulation is and you haven't defined what is exactly meant by the second coming. If you're generically saying the second coming takes place after a time period of tribulation, you haven't really said much is the point I'm trying to highlight. So, um, uh, so that's good that we, we at least know those basics. So um, let's keep reading this gentleman's uh, commentary. Some have said that Pater Lambano is only used of positive relations, right? Re taking you to myself. However, such is not the case, as is used in the Roman soldiers taking Jesus away from the Garden of Gethsemane to the Praetorium and eventual crucifixion in Matthew and John. Uh, he continues, it's used of the devil taking Jesus with him to show him all the kingdoms of this world in Matthew. This verb is also used of the exercised demon returning to the newly slept house and taking with it seven other spirits in Matthew and in Luke. Stan Toussaint discusses this matter as follows. So, we're asking, is the Greek always used in a positive sense where someone takes another person to themselves in a positive manner, the way that Jesus should be taking believers to himself in a positive way, if that's indeed the correct view. Is this a description of the rapture of the church or of the taking of the wicked to judgment? Those who take the former position argue that to take, paralambano, the verb used here, is to be differentiated from take, which we looked at earlier, airo, um, where um, the flood took them all away. The verb used in verse 39, right? Airo is, and let me just show it to you again. So we have parlambanatai in verse uh, 41, as well as in verse uh, 40 here, right there, parlambanatai. But earlier up into verse 39, we had. Um, Eirin, which is a root word, Eiro. Uh, uh, so, two different Greek words. That's what this um, pastor is highlighting, or this quote here. He goes on to say, It's asserted that paralambano signifies the act whereby Christ received his own to himself. However, paralambano is also used in a bad sense in Matthew and in John. And since it is paralleled in, th in thought with those who were taken in the judgment of the flood, it is best to refer the verb to the verb refer the verb to those who were taken for judgment preceding the establishment of the kingdom, the far right of the chart that we've been looking at. He continues, The difference in verbs can be accounted for on the basis of accuracy of description. Quote, The flood came and swept them all away is a good translation, instead of saying the flood came and took them all away. We also noted that um, last time, if we go back to uh, Matthew's rendering of this story, and we go drop down to um, verse... Uh, 39, just verse 39 here. And they did not understand until the flood came and did what? Took them all away, which is the root word, airo, took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. But when we compare this to the Luke account, which does mention the, um, uh, the, the, the Noah, the details with Noah. Let me find it here. Here we go. It is verse 27. It says, people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, and they were be being given in marriage until the day that what? Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them. Notice it doesn't even use the word airo. The word destroyed there is not the same. Uh, I'd have to look it up, but just trust me. It's If, if it was airo, it, it would be a form of the word took. Just to be sure, let's just bring it up anyway. I should have done this earlier, but let me pull up the Greek from that word. Scrolling down. The uh, then the flood came and destroyed Apollosin, 
right? Apollosin is Strong's number 622. So it's definitely different from Iro, right? So destroyed is a completely different word. So um, going back to this pastor's commentary, he's got this contextual consideration. And let's read that now. He says, for me, the strongest reason to take the separation depicted in this passage as a reference to one's taking away in judgment. Remember, he believes that this passage in Matthew is talking about the second coming, not the rapture. This is extremely important in our discussion about taking a left because of the differences in the two accounts that we've already kind of noticed, which I hope to get to tonight and finish this particular uh, aspect. For me, the strongest reason is because the reference taken in judgment is the context. It appears that Matthew 24, 40, and 41 are illustrating that which preceded it in Matthew 24, uh, 36 to 39, namely, that those who were not prepared in the days of Noah were taken away in judgment by the flood. Verse 39 ends by saying, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Clearly, the emphasis in this verse is on unbelievers being taken away in judgment in the judgment of the flood. Therefore, verses 40 and 41 drive that point home by giving a couple of examples of the coming separation that will occur at this time of judgment, meaning again near the end of the seven years at the second coming of Christ. The, the, the separation of the two, one taken, one left, the taken being those in judgment, and the left behind being those who are left behind to inherit the kingdom of God. We have another author being quoted, Arno Gabeline, notes the following. Two classes were living in Noah's day, the ones who were unbelieving, and these were swept away by the divine judgment. The other class... Uh, this this quote mentions was Noah and his house and his sons were left and not destroyed by the judgment. It will be so again in the coming of the Son of Man. The unbelievers will be taken away in the day of judgment and wrath. The others will be left on the earth to receive and enjoy the blessings of the coming age and enter the kingdom which will then be established. And then let's talk about this parallel passage. I, I, I think I can finish this tonight. Let me see how much longer this is. Yeah, we're almost done. All right, so we will be able to finish this pastor's um, notes. So now he's got a parallel passage, and we this is why I looked at them earlier before. Another reason to see Matthew 24, 40, and 41 as illustrating ones who are taken in judgment is the parallel passage found in Luke 17, 24, and 37, which, 24 through 37, which we did read. In a previous section of Luke 17, 26 through 30, Christ speaks of the coming of the sinning man being like the days of Noah and Lot. He continues, in both illustrations, it was the wicked one who was taken in judgment, right? The wicked were taken in judgment, according to this pastor, according to the view that he believes that this is the second coming, not the rapture. Taken in judgment happens at the end of the seven years, if you're a pre-tribulationist, if you're a pre-rather or if you're a post-tribulations the second coming takes place at the end of the seven years for all of those three views and it takes place after the tribulation uh, no matter how long you place the tribulation whether it's seven years three and a half years three years uh, or just whatever you think how long the tribulation is um, in both illustrations he noticed that is the wicked one who's taken in judgment. Luke 17, 27 says, The flood came and destroyed them. And I highlighted that earlier to show you that it's a different Greek word. Luke 17, 28-29 says, It was the same as happened in the days of Lot and destroyed them all. Emphasis added. Luke 17, 34-36 gives three illustrations of the separation of believers and unbelievers. 
Then the following question is asked by disciples. Notice that Luke's account has this final question tacked on the end, whereas in Matthew, it's way up earlier into the narrative about where the vultures are, there the bodies will be gathered. Where the bodies are, there the vultures will be gathered, etc., etc. Um, the quote from Luke reads, though, where, where uh, the disciples ask, where, Lord? This question means, where are the unbelievers taken? According to this author's view, Jesus answered, Wherever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. And then he goes on to talk about eagles in this context implies vultures who hover over and scavenge a dead corpse. Thus, anyone would be able to see where a dead belly is because of the vultures hovering above. Reference Revelation 19, 17 through 21. Such language clearly supports the notion, this author says, that the ones taken are removed in judgment. Maranatha. May the Lord come quickly. Okay, so that'll do it for this particular author's perspective on this passage. I'll scroll back up to the top so you can kind of see who wrote this again. This was Thomas Ice. His commentary is found at blueletterbible.org, and he was discussing this question of who will be taken and who will be left, and when is the time frame, and we left off with this particular conclusion from his perspective. I believe he's a pre-tribber. His perspective is that... There is a rapture, and I'm concluding with this. There's a rapture. I'm sorry, let me back up. There's a seven-year slice of final history given over to humanity, humanity's wicked um, and rebellious state of affairs and state of existence that will be um, in existence at the time when it's time for Jesus to return to planet Earth. His return is split up into two events, kind of bookends. The one on the far left is the rapture. The one on the far right is the second coming. These are two separate events according to most pre-trib raptures, pre-trib um, believers. Pre-tribbers believe that the rapture is at the beginning of the seven years or even outside of it, but not very far outside of it, meaning the church will be raptured prior to any seven-year tribulation hitting planet Earth. So, in the pre-trib rapture, we're taken to be with the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. The tribulation then takes place on planet Earth. It runs the course of seven years. And then at the far right of the chart, the second coming, where Jesus returns with his saints, occurs after the tribulation, and that's when those who are taken will be those who are taken in judgment, and those who are left behind are those who will be left behind, I'm sorry, those who are taken, yes, those who are taken will be taken in judgment and excluded from the kingdom, and those who are left behind will are those who will be left behind to inherit the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on planet Earth at the far right of this particular slide. So that's basically what we just discussed. And what we'll do next week is we'll turn into, we'll go from this gentleman's commentary into uh, another perspective given by Tim Haig, who, and I, I purposely turned away from the page so you wouldn't be able to see uh, and begin to read his perspective. Um, we'll turn to that next week and see... Uh, is he in agreement with what, what this gentleman said about taking in the left and, and when this takes place? Or does he have a different perspective to take? I haven't even tell you what I believe yet. Um, but I did show you just a, kind of a hint at that uh, by showing you these two slides, two events. Rapture versus second coming. Rapture versus second coming. But that'll do it for eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, 
Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torch to your, to your congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftedna.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. Let's take 30 minutes and discuss this topic of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. The verse reads from the NIV's version that biblicalunitarian.com is borrowing, I wisdom was appointed from eternity from the beginning. And when I click on the verse, or the link on their website, um, they offer a commentary on this particular passage. I was appointed from eternity from the beginning before the world began, the NIV. According to biblicalunitarian.com, which is a website about God and His Son, Jesus Christ, they are a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination that believes that God the Father is the only God and there is no God the Son nor God the Spirit. They are non-Trinitarian, similar to other non-Trinitarian groups out there, Christadelphians, Oneness Pentecostals, Oneness Pentecostals, Iglesia de Cristo, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, um, Seventh, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, I was going to say Mormons, um, or Latter Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So there are a lot of non-Trinitarian groups out there, and this particular group, Biblical Unitarian, along with their kind of umbrella organization, just Unitarianism, rejects Trinity. There are not three persons in the Godhead. Um, there's one God, and then Jesus either is a demigod, a creature that was created by God before the creation of the world, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who are the modern-day versions of Arians, 
or some say that Jesus is actually the Father, uh, like the Oneness Pentecostals. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are really all just one being that wear three different masks. So it's uh, the Oneness Pentecostals are the modern versions of ancient modalists. Or we have a perspective like the Unitarians, particularly biblical Unitarians, who believe that Jesus is merely a human being. And God is the Father. He's God. Jesus is a human. He's not divine. He's not deity. And the Holy Spirit is just another name for God, or it's the power that God um, anoints uh, we human beings with. And this view of biblical Unitarian, the modern biblical Unitarians, are really uh, resemble the ancient day Socinians, which held this view as well. We, biblical Unitarians, by contrast and comparison, believe that God is one, yet God is three persons, all co-equal, all consubstantial, and yet three persons, one God, three persons. So neither is lesser than the other in terms of nature and substance or power, being, authority, etc., etc. But when it comes to a bit of um, dealing with the persons and the economy of God, what we might call the hierarchy of God, as God the Father sends the Son and begets the Son, right? The Son is begotten of the Father, therefore one is Father, one is Son. There's no confusion there between who is who, um, who is whom, who, which one is which one. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is... Um, is issued forth, or the the procession of the Spirit, we might call it, um, goes forth from Father and Son, or depending on which filioque side of the debate you want to, which side of the filioque debate you want to land on, he's only issued from the Father, not the Son. But either way, there's a bit of a um, of a kind of a hierarchy in in the economy of God when we're talking about the roles and functions that each plays in the um, biblical narrative. So, we're looking at uh, Proverbs chapter um, 8, specifically verse 23 in, in, in primary, but we backed up to verse 22, and we're reading all the way down through verse 25 in my own notes here. So, when we look at the verse in, in, in earnest, uh, on your screen, we've got verse 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. And in the Hebrew, the word that's rendered from the English as possessed is this Hebrew word, um, uh, ka-nani. And this word kanani is translated as possessed, but we're also finding that um, there are different ways to translate this, um, just in verse 22. Primarily in verse 23, from everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. And this is the verse we've kind of been focusing on, uh, which reads in the Hebrew, In the English we've got, I was established... But in the Hebrew, we've got this word um, nisachti, and we've been looking at this root word nasach. Does it mean that he was um, created? Was he established? Was he set up? Um, it was definitely at the beginning, because he says meolam, and it's at the beginning. He parallels that with from the beginning. So the word meolam at the beginning of the verse, for, which is translated into English as everlasting, is paralleled with merosh, which is translated as beginning in the second half of the verse, right? So it's poetic parallelism going on here, obviously. But what is the meaning of this verb, um, I'm sorry, uh, of this word, nisachti, um, nasach? What does this verb mean to, to be set up or to be established? Likewise, when we get to verse 24 and 25, there are two words that are brought 
into the discussion in par- in poetic fashion that um also speak of wisdom um being uh as it were entering the scenes the f- the word is brought forth when there were no depths i was brought forth the hebrew word as i'm highlighting on your screen is um Holoti, and it's the same word that shows up two times in the uh, in the two verses, twenty four and twenty five. Both use the same for, phrase. Before the uh, when there were no depths, I was brought forth, and then before the hills, I was brought forth. Holoti being used in both times. But let's go back to verse uh, twenty two. I'm sorry, twenty three. From everlasting, I was established. That's where we left off with our discussion last week. Let's pick up our discussion. Oops. This is a screen I, I showed last week. I won't dwell too much on it, but um, it's kind of the dilemma that's faced by the Job's Witness who say that really what's at stake is if wisdom is is Jesus, like Trinitarians say, remember, Biblical Unitarian, well, you may not remember because I didn't um, give you a reminder. Biblical Unitarian, I apologize for not mentioning this earlier. Biblical Unitarian says that wisdom in this passage is not Jesus. Because this wisdom is spoken of as being with God from the from time immemorial, from eternity, etc., etc., they say that wisdom is merely a personification of God's power and God's um, one of God's immutable attributes that He cannot do without. Therefore, it's not that wisdom is something that God was lacking that He had to create like the Jehovah's Witness view of Jesus being created as a as a, an agent before the world was even created. So, remember, <clears throat> the Jehovah's Witness model is that Jesus was created first by God, and then Jesus created, so God created Jesus, and then Jesus created the rest of the world, the rest of the universe, and everything else. So, that's why God can be called a creator in some passages, and Jesus can be called a creator in other passages. They can have their cake and eat it too by saying that Jesus is the creator of everything else. And indeed, they they alter their rendering of certain passages, like when Paul talks about that, that by him and for him and through him, all things were created, like in Colossians. The Jehovah's Witnesses alter that passage to say, by him and for him and through him, all everything else was created, instead of saying everything, all things. Um, they, they have everything else. They insert the idea that it's not himself, that he, cre- he didn't create himself, but everything else was created by him. All right. The... Biblical Unitarians, by contrast, say, no, Jesus was not created at the beginning of the world. He was not this agent that God used to create everything. He was not around at the creation of the world. Where was Jesus? He was in the mind of God. That's all. And so, all those passages that talk about um, by him, before him, and through him, all things were created, etc., etc., it's only referring to the thought that was in God's head to where he was focusing on the sun when he was actually creating everything. Therefore, since the sun was the focal point in God's power, uh, when when creation was springing forth from God's hand, then that's why the verses read the way they do about Jesus seemingly being the creator. No, it's not Jesus the being that was the creator, according to Biblical Unitarian. No, it's not Jesus the human being. It was merely Jesus the thought. That's what created the world. Therefore, really, it's God that created everything. Well, then in Proverbs, wisdom cannot be Jesus because God has always possessed proverb uh, wisdom. God has always uh, been in possession of wisdom. It wasn't something he created at the beginning. He was not lacking wisdom. Therefore, Biblical Unitarian soundly rejects Job's Witness perspective as well as the Trinitarian perspective. So, given that dilemma for um, Job's Witness, 
given the fact that they are rejected both by biblical Unitarians as well as Trinitarians, they say they're they're stuck in this pickle between if you look at this question, okay, so do you believe that Job was that Job lacked wisdom at some point in time? If Jesus is wisdom that God had to create, right? Jesus wasn't on the scene for eternity, but God brought him into the scene. And therefore, if Jesus is wisdom, then wisdom had to be created by God at some point in time. Would then Jehovah lacked wisdom at some point in time? Jehovah's Witness says if they say yes, then the conclusion leads to the fact that God isn't all wise, right? Well, they can't have that because that's a dilemma. God is God is not not all wise in their model if they say yes to the question that God had to create wisdom because he lacked it. But if they say, no, he didn't lack wisdom at some point in time, then we can say, well, then so Jesus, if he's wisdom, then he is eternal, right? Remember, the pickle for Jehovah's Witness is that at the bottom of this, this little chart that you're seeing this graphic, is that they cannot admit to either the yes or no conclusion. They cannot admit that God isn't all wise, nor can they admit that Jesus is eternal. They're stuck in a between a rock and a hard place if they go either direction. And then lastly, if it's personification, like the uh, biblical Unitarians say, if biblical Unitarian, if the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, no, it's just personification. Um, it's it, it, that's not really Jesus. It's just personification. Well, if it is personification, according to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, if that's true, but all of these passages that you see on your screen that I'm not going to take time to go through and look up, but I'll leave this site on the screen long enough for you guys to look it up on your own, look all the passages up, then how come all those other passages don't make the Holy Spirit a person? Is that what's going on? Remember, Jehovah's Witnesses, along with Biblical Unitarian, reject the idea that the Holy Spirit is a person, and yet Proverbs is only personification? Or it is Jesus, right? So there, there's, there are aspects to whichever uh, um, perspective you take. You're going to find that from my perspective as a Trinitarian, I'll go ahead and tell you right up front. I believe that the Book of Proverbs is talking about G, is it is using it is employing the tool of personification on one aspect, but on the other on the aspect. It is also showing us that Jesus is the eternal one who existed, self-existed with the Father alongside God from eternity past. He is the eternal creator. God did not create him. So both aspects are true of Jesus. Wisdom is Jesus um, personified, but yet Jesus is very God existing alongside God in eternity past. So I take that perspective which some Trinitarians would say Proverbs is only personification and not Jesus, and other Trinitarians would say Proverbs is Jesus. Wisdom is Jesus. It's not merely personification. It truly is Jesus because we have a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is talked about as the wisdom of God. So we're working in that. We're working towards that. Let me... Um, and we're also working towards uh, reading through the um, a part of the book of John where John uh, parallels wisdom with the Logos, the Word, right? In the beginning was the Word, which we're working our way towards that. But let's finish looking through my commentary first. We left off here um, talking about um, uh, this idea of the definition of Nasach 
and how it emphasizes um, the eternal nature of God. So I backed up just one paragraph because it's the last paragraph we read. This is my own commentary, which is not available online anywhere. If you want to follow along with this particular short essay, you can only do so by watching this video series. <clears throat> so here we go. At this point in time, throughout the rest of the commentary, I'm going to try and resist stopping and, and um, uh, interjecting my own thoughts because this is my own thoughts, so should be self-explanatory. You ready? Here we go. Here's what I had to say. Despite the differences in interpretation, the word nasach, right, in verse uh, 25, I'm sorry, verse 23... From everlasting, I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Let's highlight those so you can see them both. So, um, or highlight them so you can see it a little bit bigger. Blow it up on the screen. So, this is verse 23 in Proverbs 8 in the English NASB. And the word in, in that we're focusing on is this word that's rendered established in the NSB version here in the English. If we go over to the um, Hebrew, it's... There we go. It's that word right there. Meolam nisachti meirosh mikad mearetz. From everlasting, I was established, or yeah, the English word established, and then from the beginning, meirosh mikad mearetz before the world was set up, or from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. So that's the verse in question that we're really kind of looking at. I go on to say, the divine origin, oops, the divine origin of wisdom, which was um, established by God before the creation of the world, is what I believe is being emphasized. It's because of the parallelism between the two words of um, before the world began, and let me just show you to you again, from everlasting here and from the earliest times here. Um, both of these words are used in parallel fashion to describe in the Hebrew mindset something that took place prior to the creation. And in the Hebrew worldview, there's only two chambers uh, or two spheres of existence. I'll put a little graphic on the chart like I've done in the past. On the left side of the Hebrew mind, there is a, crea a creator and he, he exists in a sphere or a, a place, a um, what we might call a a, a, a a mode of existence that is eternal. There is no beginning for the creator. And in this place called creator on the left side of the screen that you're going to see in post-production, there's God, Son, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all God. They're all equally um, eternal because they exist in this sphere, in this dimension that is um, out, outside of our own as humans, because we're, we exist in the one that's on the right that you're going to see in a moment. Well, so there's creator on the left side in this dimension, and then on the right side, there's everything else. There's creation. So there's creator on the left and creation on the right. And creation includes everything else. And that's everything that's temporal. Uh, everything that's finite. So it's really just the distinction between infinite on the left and finite on the right. Um, eternal on the left and um, not eternal on the right. Well, when the writers of the Bible would use words like everlasting and earliest times of the earth and things like that, they're describing times that are outside of time. They're describing pre-time. They're describing the eternal state. And so 
everlasting was when I was established, or that's where I dwelt, that's where I lived. Meaning, wisdom was not created, was not something that wouldn't, didn't exist. It's poetic to say it was established, but what does established mean? That's kind of where we're going. I keep going. This emphasizes the eternal and divine nature of wisdom, which existed where? Before the creation of the world, so outside of creation. I go on to say, I went on to say, the word nasak is consistent with the Trinitarian understanding of the book of Proverbs, and um, particularly with this particular passage of 8.23, which views, I say, the wisdom of God mentioned in this verse as what? referring to the second person of the Trinity, i.e. the Son. So this is a view that is consistent with the Trinitarian view that wisdom is eternal, coexisting with God, alongside God, does not need to be created by God. God never lacked wisdom, just like the Father never lacked the Son. Indeed, by way of title, you cannot have a father without a son or without offspring, and you cannot have a son without a parent, without um, some form of parent. That's just the nature of the way the words work, both in English as well as in other languages. No mystery there. Okay, let's keep reading. I went on to say last week, according to this view, the Son is begotten from eternity by the Father. So it's an eternal begetting, it's a mystery, and is therefore co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. So that's where we left off. Now, let's jump right into where the rest of my commentary picks up, and I'll try to resist um, pausing. I go on to say, as is often brought out by non-Trinitarians, the verse can indeed be interpreted in a number of ways. One interpretation is that it is a reference to the eternal nature of wisdom. Wisdom is seen as being present from the very beginning of creation. So, um... Let's just keep going. This interpretation, I go on to say, is supported by the fact that the verse is located in a section of Proverbs that is devoted to the praise of wisdom, right? I mean, um, we are talking about one of God's attributes that, because it's one of God's eternal attributes, often when we're looking at the Bible, at God's power, God's nature, God's attributes, and the eternal, the eternal nature of God and his attributes, we often find personification taking place. The word of God, the wisdom of God, like we have here in Proverbs, the right arm of the Lord, where we've got this aspect or power of God being, being almost separate from God, a separate part of God uh, that can be focused upon, the Spirit of God that can be um, almost separated and designated as a distinct being or aspect or power from God in a personification manner in some passages, or as a wholly separate a person in other passages, Spirit of God, things like that, Word of God, power of God, wisdom of God, the right arm of God. So, it's not unusual um, to find these types of languages in our Bible. I go on to say, another interpretation is that the verse is a reference to the pre-existence of Christ. So here's where Biblical Unitarian disagrees, but yet <clears throat> the Jehovah's Witnesses give a little bit of lip service to, right? The pre-existence of Christ. Remember, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by God sometime in eternity past, what I like to call kind of the Star Wars theology. When was Jesus created? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. 
Yeah, you guys know what I'm go- where I'm going with that. Okay, so I go on to say that in the New Testament, Jesus is often referred to as what? The wisdom of God. And in John 1, 1 through 3, Jesus is said to have been with God in the beginning and to have been involved in the creation of the world. And again, the Jehovah's Witnesses can look at John 1, 1 through 3 and say that Jesus was not with God in eternity, which shows their misunderstanding of the Hebrew word breshit and the Greek word arche, which is rendered by John in the John 1, 1 passage, in the beginning, in arche in halagos, in the beginning was the logos. Well, Borrowing from the Hebrew notion of uh, Genesis, Breshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God created, we have this idea in the Hebrew mind that the beginning that's spoken of is the eternal state that I just described earlier, this sphere of existence, this dimension where only pure deity can dwell. But in the Jehovah's Witnesses model, Jesus was somehow whipped up by God as a construct, as a thing, as a tool, as a creation, as a creature, who is then given the status of lesser God, demigod, little God, or if you're an Austin Powers fan, mini-me. <coughs> so, um, that's what's going on in John 1-1, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. <coughs> Sorry about the coughs there. Let's continue. This interpretation, I go on to say, is supported by the fact that the verse uses the same language that is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus. Right, remember, we're talking about Proverbs, wisdom, but we're also beginning to bring in the idea of John's Logos, and we'll actually dead end at that probably tonight, uh, where we're going to turn to uh, beginning look at uh, more of John. Actually, I'm eventually going to bring in the Septuagint Greek um, and get a little bit more technical, but let's keep reading my own commentary. So, I go on to say that now let's look at some parallels between Proverbs 8.23 and John 1, 1 through 18. Um, I'm doing this for the purpose of showing you how that um, it is not unimaginable to think that when John penned his letters and in, in, um, penned his words in John, the book of John, that he was already drawing from this idea that was present in the mind of the Hebrews that um, the Word of God was an agent of God that existed alongside God from the very beginning. And he develops this idea that was even beginning to be prominent in Greek circles known as the Logos theology. Logos is the Greek word for our English word. Uh, some people say logos, but I say logos, L-O-G-O-S. And so we're going to begin to see that John's logos figure prominently parallels with the brighter to the book of Proverbs wisdom figure. Although in the book of Proverbs, because of the um, grammatical aspect of the Hebrew word chokhmah being feminine, in the Hebrew, thus wisdom is not described as a man or a, a, a male, but a rather a lady, a woman, or described as called your sister in Proverbs chapter 7. So let's keep looking at now Proverbs 8.23 and its parallels with um, John. I go on to say that, oops, didn't mean to make it jump like that. Let's go like that. I go on to say in my first bullet point, both passages speak of a divine being, quote-unquote, who is present with God in the beginning. All right, so far, so good. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses would agree with that part. 
I go on to say both passages speak of this being and his involvement in creation. I put being in quotes because God is a being. Jesus, as a human, is also a being. And whether you say he's an eternal being like we say as Trinitarians, or whether you say he's a temporal being like the Biblical Unitarians and the Jehovah's Witnesses say, either way, he's a being. We're all beings. Beings have personhood. Beings have identity. And so I'm putting being there in in quotation marks because in the Trinitarian model, we believe that God has, um, we believe that Jesus has two natures, obviously. He has a fully divine nature that he shares with God his Father, which is eternal. And he has a temporal human nature that he shares with all humans like we have, meaning we have a time when we are brought into existence and we have a, a, be- a beginning, right? We have a human nature. We're fully human. Well, Jesus was fully human. He was truly human. He wasn't a quasi-human or a demi-human or meta-human or uh, an X-man, an X-man or um, some other thing like that. He was fully human, truly human, and yet, according to the mystery of the Bible, the mystery of the Incarnation, he was truly and fully God as well at the same time. And then lastly, I say that both passages, speaking of Proverbs as well as the book of John, John 1, 1 through 18, both passages speak of this being as a source of wisdom and understanding. So, those are the kind of the broad strokes that I painted first. Let's use the, the final three or four minutes left in the study to keep working our way down through this and see how much of it I can read. What I go on to say is that these parallels suggest that the wisdom of Proverbs 8.23 is the same being as Jesus Christ in John 1.1.18. The parallels are striking, right? Uh, being uh, existing alongside God from eternity, or at least being brought into the picture using terminology that describes eternity. That's number one. Number two, um, being involved in the creation process. And number three, being, uh, what did I say, being a source of wisdom and understanding. So, all of those are strong indicators that we're dealing with the same being in that regards. I go on to say, this interpretation is also supported by the fact that Jesus is often referred to as the wisdom of God in the New Testament. I say often, but at least we have one passage that I'm going to highlight tonight. I go on to say that, for example, in Colossians 2.3, and this is the famous one that we're all familiar with, Paul writes that, quote, in him, that is Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's continue. The Trinitarian understanding, which is the one that I that I hold to, that I'm um, claiming is the best interpretation to work with in this discussion, The Trinitarian understanding of Proverbs 8.23 is, in my opinion, a beautiful and profound way of understanding the nature of God. It teaches us that God is not a solitary being, but that He is what? A community of three persons who are eternally united in love. And I've pulled this language about community of three persons. I think I got that either from, I may have gotten it from uh, Matt Slick of Carm, or I heard it from John MacArthur, or I may have heard it from, um, I think I may have heard it from uh, Pastor. Um, uh, John Piper, or one of these uh, pastors that uses this phrase, a community of three persons. I, I, I rather like it. I go on to say that this understanding of God, and I'm saying this in, I'm, I'm, I wrote this essay in very um, simplified terminology. In terms of English, I didn't use a lot of heavy um, grammar and a lot of um, 
technical grammar and heavy Greek terms, and I didn't even use a style of English that I normally would write. I, I used a rather very simplified English style in this essay because I'm dealing with primarily a lot of non-Trinitarians when I have these discussions, and there's a, a, a serious misunderstanding of what Trinity primarily entails, and I don't want anyone to get confused. So, I'm, I'm trying to bring it down to a very basic foundational understanding level, so I'm not being very, um, uh, what you could say, academic in this particular essay. This is a kind of an unusual way for me to write an essay, and uh, in fact, I call it an essay instead of a commentary. So, that's why the, the sentences are very simplified. Uh, this, I go on to say, this understanding of God can give us great comfort and hope knowing that we are never alone, but that we are always loved and cared for by our Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice that community of three persons who are eternally united in what? In love. Let's keep reading. I've got a little bit of time and I want to make it down through a significant portion of this part of my commentary. These are my own thoughts. When we examine Proverbs 8.23 in light of the Trinitarian understanding, we can draw parallels with the personification of wisdom, yes, in the Gospel of John, especially with the description of the Logos, i.e. the Word, in John 1, 1, 18. So remember, Biblical Unitarian rejects Trinitarian. They believe that wisdom in the book of Proverbs is not Jesus. It's not a a creature that was created by God like the Jehovah's Witnesses might believe. Rather, instead, wisdom is simply an eternal attribute of God that is being spoken of as personification. Nothing more, nothing less. I go on to say, the Gospel of John portrays the Logos, i.e. the Word, as the pre-existent and divine Word of God who was both with God from the beginning and was instrumental in creation alongside God and is God. I said both. I didn't write that. I said who was with God from the beginning and was instrumental in creation. So, is Jesus merely an agent of God? As a human being, he is merely an agent of God, um, but he's more than that because he is eternally God. He's fully and truly human, so he shares in our weaknesses and in, in our um, and in our thoughts and our concerns. And yet, he was without sin. He was the perfect man, empowered by the Spirit, and led a Spirit-led life, and modeled what it means to be a truly obedient servant of the one true living God. But. I emphasize those terms because he is a man, and we must see him in the New Testament as a true human. He's not, like I said, someone who did things that we can't do um, because he was above us. He he had his flesh was truly human. His blood was real blood when he when he uh, died on the cross, and his blood was poured out. And yet he is truly and fully uh, divine at the same time. So let's look to him as our brother and as our um, high priest, the one that we can identify with uh, in our weaknesses. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like he walked, we too can walk uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and turn away from sin. Let's. We can't be sinless like he he was. Um, that's true. That part about him is different. But the point I'm simply trying to highlight is that we share in the same um, flesh and blood as he is. Therefore, he is a true representative of humanity. He is the true sacrifice for sin. Um, because as the representative, he took our place as a man dying on the cross, and yet he was truly divine. So I've got. Two paragraphs, three paragraphs, four paragraphs, five paragraphs left in the section. And I can, I can already tell 
that I'm not going to be able to finish it. Otherwise, I would just be reading through so fast that you put, probably wouldn't be able to follow along even if, if I only just read. So uh, I did my best. We'll stop here right at this paragraph where it starts to begin to talk about the Logos being identified with Jesus Christ as the Son of God who is depicted as the eternal Word made flesh. We'll pick this up again next week, but that'll do it for a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you for the opportunity to study. I thank you for the opportunity to teach. What a blessing to be able to share my thoughts with those others uh, around the world who join me week after week in this uh, medium of the internet, the YouTube channels, the the uh, website uh, resources, the um, iTunes podcasts, and the written commentaries and things like that. Um, it's my pleasure. It's my um, privilege to be able to share these thoughts. Help me to continue to press in, to know you more, to love you and to serve you and to be a an ambassador of your name and of your great kingdom, your great name and your kingdom, which are going to soon be manifest here on earth um, like never before. Lord, we thank you for your first coming, but we are looking with anticipation for your second coming. And uh, we will continue to have that blessed hope of the resurrection if we die before you return and the blessed hope of being transformed and being caught up alive to meet you in the air if that is uh, the case. But either way, we'll be careful to give the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,